Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. Register today for our Dry Eye Innovation Showcase on March 11th that will feature eight company presentations and two panels to provide industry and clinical perspectives. Visit ois.net forward slash events to reserve your spot. We have the venerable Vince Anito on the line for this episode. Vince is the CEO of Airy Pharmaceuticals, one of the most accomplished emerging growth companies in ophthalmology. He tells about his early days in Cuba and how his environment shaped his professional path. Vince divulges the strategies Airy has used to grow their business and improve the way they develop the products that have ultimately helped to change the way we manage glaucoma patients. Let's listen in and learn how Vince positioned Airy as a global force to be reckoned with. Lots to learn. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the OIS podcast. Uh, my name is Rob Rothman. Uh, I have had the privilege of uh, being a moderator for several OIS panels in the past. By, by way of introduction, uh, I am a uh, board-certified ophthalmologist, fellowship trained in glaucoma and in clinical practice uh, for a significant portion of my time. Uh, the remainder of my work uh, days are spent uh, as the co-founder and managing member of InFocus Capital Partners, which is an ophthalmically focused venture capital fund uh, here in the U.S. Uh, we have uh, a portfolio that consists of 12 ophthalmic uh, opportunities, all early stage. Uh, and by way of disclosure, uh, we do not trade in the public space, and therefore I have no interest um, financially uh, with um, uh, today's guest. So uh, that's, that's my disclosure. I am fortunate enough to have today uh, for um, my first OIS podcast guest, uh, Vince Anito, who is the chairman and CEO of Airy Pharmaceuticals, uh, somebody who I've always wanted to sit down with one-on-one. -on -one. We've had the opportunity to meet several times in the past. Um, and we'll discuss some of those reasons why I've always wanted to speak with Vince. Um, and Vince, now you will be forever known as my first. So uh, not, to, not, not, to, not, to, uh, not, not to put too much pressure on you, but um, really appreciate you taking the time and uh, coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Rob. And I, I promise not to screw it up, at least not on purpose. <laughs> well, I do not make that promise, but, but, um, but too bad. It's just the way it goes. Um, I, I thought that in the in the spirit of um, homeschooling and the current academic environment, we would start today's discussion off with a little quiz. So it's a pop quiz for Vince. Didn't know he was getting this, which I think is always exciting. And um, um, it should be pretty easy. So it's one question. Um, you know, I, I did a little homework before our uh, our discussion today, and I, I communicated with a few of my ophthalmology friends and I put down on an email um, 10 ophthalmology companies. And I said, send this back to me without looking it up and tell me who the chairman is uh, of or CEO is of each of these companies, all glaucoma focused into the glaucoma space. And who do you think was the one name that everybody knew on that list? Don't think too hard, Vince. It was yeah, you. Right. Okay. It was you. <laughs> It was you. So, you know, it's a very interesting thing. And, and, and I did that because I started to think to myself, you know, I don't 
I don't necessarily know who the CEOs are of a lot of the companies whose products I deal with on a daily basis, but why is it that I know Vince? You know, what is it, what is it that makes it so that I have come to know your name so clearly when I haven't had the ability to know that from many other companies? And I think it'll be sort of a focus of the conversation today, and hopefully we'll get to it. Um, but I, I'd like to start off, if, if we can, today with discussing a little bit about you. So um, I have no interest in becoming the CEO of a large pharma corporation. Um, so um, that's good, I guess. But I think there are a lot of people who would like to understand how that happens. You know, what is it? How, how has your educational background sort of helped shape you? How has that led you to, to the position that you're at in now? And what experiences have you had in your professional life that have sort of built up to you becoming, you know, the CEO of one of the most important companies in ophthalmology today? So I don't know, maybe go back to the beginning, how you grew up, where your, where your education led you, all that stuff. Give us a little insight into, into the progress of Vincenito through the ranks. Sure. So um, I've been in the pharmaceutical industry pretty much all my adult life. And the reason that uh, that was important to me is I came from a healthcare family. My doc my dad was a doctor, he was a clinical pathologist. My mom was an operating room uh, head nurse, uh, when, and I was born in Cuba. So shortly after Castro took over, uh, we decided, or they decided, that it was time to move the family out of there. So I was about eight years old, and they took us out of there and uh, moved us to Miami. And so I actually grew up in what is now South Beach, went to Miami Beach Elementary, and then went on from there. And then eventually my dad got his medical license back. And that was probably one of the early learnings in that education for him was it. He said, no matter what, no matter who takes over a country, no matter what they try to do to you, the one thing that you have that can always make you come back is your education. So education for us was always very, very important. So he got his license back and he became chair of uh, clinical pathology at uh, West Virginia University. We moved there in the uh, early 60s, and it was the first time I ever saw snow. <laughs> and, uh, and to this day, I still hate it. So that's why I've always tried to live in southern climates. And so, but I went to school there uh, because I decided a long time ago that I was going to pay my way through school. Didn't want anybody worrying about me. Didn't want anybody telling me what to do, what to study, what kind of grades we get, which is probably a good thing because I wasn't the world's best college student. So I got my BS and my master's degree uh, from WVU. Uh, uh, my BS was in uh, in pharmacy and my master's degree was in uh, pharmaceutical sciences. But again, following what I learned from my dad, I went on and decided that after school, I had a, an interest, not so much in the science side, although I was okay at that, but it was mainly on the business side of pharmacy and everything related to pharmacy and healthcare. So I went to University of Missouri in Kansas City and did two things. One, uh, pursued the PhD there in pharmaceutical sciences, so I completed that. But at the same time, I worked for my first pharmaceutical company, which at the time was Marion Laboratories. Marion was in the gastroenterology, cardiology field. It, it was doing branded generics way back, all the way from the beginnings in the 50s on through. And then we came out with two licensed products, one was called Cartizone and the other one, Carafate. They transformed the company. So over a five-year period, our stock doubled and split uh, five years in a row. And, and they picked a number of us to develop in, in very, very quickly because the company was growing so fast. 
So I was one of just two or three folks that they selected for general management. And so I literally had a job, a different job every two years for about a six year period. And then uh, they actually sent me up to Canada to go run a uh, 50% owned business, which was a freestanding pharmaceutical company uh, called Nordic Laboratories. So I lived in Montreal for not quite four years, had to learn language because most of the folks there spoke French and we ran our meetings in both English and French. I uh, had an outside board. So I was, that was my first CEO gig. So I was in my mid thirties and, and went through that. And then they brought me back to the U.S. And it was about the time that um, I met Gavin Herbert. And so Gavin is the one that convinced me to move to Allergan. And that was my first introduction into ophthalmology. And the thing that I learned from Gavin, and um, while it's always an honor to be recognized in a survey like the one that you ran, <laughs> I have to admit I wasn't 100% surprised because the one thing Gavin taught me and everybody else who was there was the importance of the customer. No matter where we went, whether it was in ophthalmology meetings or dermatology meetings, et cetera, everybody knew Gavin. And so for me, the focus has always been about the customer. And so ever since I moved into ophthalmology, I got to do things we couldn't do in cardiology because there and, and gastroenterology just couldn't get to meet all the doctors. It just wouldn't have the relationship that we have in ophthalmology. So it's a very unique uh, grouping of people that both in terms of those that are direct patient contacts and those of us who provide goods and services. And so um, not only at Allergan, but then our subsequent company, ISTA, which um, when I learned how to fly and um, I ended up flying all over the country and I was able to visit doctors where they practiced. So you know, made it easy for me. I traveled to the East Coast and I spent a week or so flying up and down the East Coast everywhere. Just whenever the, the rep said, hey, we need you to come in and talk to a bunch of physicians, we were there. And so I've been able to continue that not only uh, post Airy or post ISTA, but then brought that whole philosophy to Airy as well. And so whenever we go to meetings, uh, like the medical meetings, um, I'll go to OIS when we were holding those. Um, and uh, I would not meet individually with folks. I would not run any uh, company meetings um, during those times. I was in the booth the whole time. So if anybody wanted to see me, I wouldn't go back to a hotel suite. They had to come to the booth to meet with me. And so that allowed me to see a whole range of folks, not just our KOLs, but Anybody showed up at the suite, the reps would bring them over and uh, we get a chance to visit. And so uh, that's been one of the greatest things for me as being a CEO of an ophthalmology company is the closeness that any of us can have with, with the customers. And it was all driven by what Gavin taught us. It's fascinating. I, I, I can... It, 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 I remember the first time I actually met you, which was in the booth, and it's it's pretty fascinating. And I, for people who don't know what you know, these big ophthalmology focused meetings are like the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting and OIS and Askeris and, and all these giant meetings. You wanted to say hi to Vince, you just go to the booth. And that was exactly mm -hmm. where we met the first bunch of times. And, you know, it's interesting that you've, at least in my opinion, surrounded yourself with people 
who buy into your philosophy wholeheartedly. I mean, the people that we've dealt with in the real world as, as an ophthalmologist uh, from Harry, you know, some of the close contacts I've had with guys like Evan Hockman and even my local rep, you know, Paul Stolino and, you know, mm-hmm. people are all genuinely focused on making sure that, you know, we have what we need from Ari, the company. Uh, and it's, it's, it's certainly, I think, a, a, a leadership attitude that has filtered down effectively through the ranks. So um, congratulations, I guess, on that. So thank you. Um, what, what kind of planes do you fly just out of curiosity? <laughs> well, um, I stopped flying a couple of years ago, but um, the last plane that I flew for a uh, little over uh, 10 years was a Citation 5. So uh, it flew, you know, we, we can carry eight people. Uh, we flew up to 43,000 feet, about 525 miles an hour, somewhere in that ballpark. And uh, we could uh, make it uh, halfway across the country before refueling and then go land at Teterboro or any other airport on the East Coast we wanted to go to, you know, Boston and things like that. And I could always beat the airlines. <laughs> Because, you know, again, it, you know, it takes so long to go sit at the airport and kind of wait for the plane to take off and this and that, where I would just drive up. I had a co-pilot and he and I would trade uh, information about the weather and route and all that other kind of stuff. And then I'd do a walk around and jump on the airplane and we'd be gone. It's fascinating. That's a nice way to do it if you can do it. Yes. Um, um, pop quiz question number two for Vince Anito. Who is the only CEO who ever came to Long Island and took the administrative group from our practice out to dinner? I would guess that that was us. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I've been in practice, you know, again, as as an ophthalmologist, I've been in practice since 1998. I can tell you that um, that was the singular time that we were entertained at dinner by the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. And again, and, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, I'm part of a, a, a glaucoma consultants of Long Island, which is a glaucoma subspecialty group, but we are now um, a member of a private equity backed entity here in New York, OCLI. And, you know, this was just a dinner just to say, hi, there was no agenda. We didn't talk about, about any products. There was no sales pitch. This was you saying, Hey, I'd like to come out to dinner and hear how it's going for you guys in New York. It's just a, it's a very unique, um, and again, I'm, uh, I know I know we're having this conversation. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's a very unique style that I think that that sort of endears people um, to a company or a brand. And I think that 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 attitude uh, is further supported by quality of the products that you provide. If you had good products in horrible management, I think you would find that the attitude towards, you know, the products from that company would diminish. You know, I think people really appreciate management style, especially in ophthalmology, which is a small, tight knit community compared to some of the other disciplines in medicine. And everybody sort of knows everybody. And it it changes, I think, I I think a lot of the ways that you really need to do business. And I think one of the uh, things that's come up repeatedly in my conversations now as a, you know, part-time venture capitalist is how we perceive Aerie as, you know, one of the future important people in our specialty and a company that we hope continues to grow and, and support us because, you know, we need some of that uh, 
tighter knit, more personal approach to how we care for patients because of the uniqueness of the way ophthalmology is practiced. So um, I think with that as a segue, I'd love to hear a little bit um, uh, about Ari from your perspective. I don't think a lot of people who listen to the OIS podcast have any idea where Ari came from. And it's a fascinating story to me as a glaucoma specialist, especially having known David Epstein in a very cursory way for, for many um, for many years uh, through his research. And obviously as a glaucoma specialist, knew of him very well. But maybe you could walk us through a little bit about the origins of Ari. I think it's a fascinating sure. story. Well, it was really interesting. So David always had this whole philosophy about um, in order to treat a disease, you have to go to treat the underlying cause of that disease. And then glaucoma, as you know, is a disease trabecular meshwork. And so he spent an awful lot of time in his labs and talking to people and trying to drag venture guys in to do nothing but explore molecules that could actually improve the health of the trabecular meshwork. And so he uh, teamed up by luck with a... Uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Casey Kopchinski, who's our current chief scientific officer and head of our science and technology group. And Casey was a biologist by training, had been at, at a startup uh, out on the West Coast and moved back in. He has a PhD in biology of all things. And so they hooked up and, and Casey's thing was using live animal models for testing, as opposed to what a lot of companies do in vitro testing. And so uh, the two of them got together and um, there was a gift from um, Procter & Gamble uh, when they disbanded their pharmaceutical R&D unit, and that included a rokinase library. So they started testing um, all these molecules. And there was none in that library that made sense, and it was mixed up with some other molecules and things like that. But with it came a medicinal chemist. So they added him to the picture. And they started testing things and Casey came up with all these animal models that they could mimic what would happen if you put a drug on a living organism, or, you know, some, some one of the, uh, the animals that they were using for testing. And they came up with one that was very, very predictive for what would happen in humans. And the medicinal chemist actually went off and was, you know, adding his little ornaments to these uh, pharmacophores and, you know, trying to come up with, you know, various things that he could do. And they came out with a very potent molecule. They got tested in the animals first, went into humans, did a great job. And that was the first product that the company had. And it was great until we actually put it into the, the first of the phase two trials. And we found that the drug were great for a very specific period of time. But and that was about the time that I came in. So all of this that I was describing took effect from about 2005 to about 2013 or so. And so when I came into the company, I said to Casey, look, you know, it's, it's great that we have this molecule, but we better have a backup. And so he came out with a backup and it was, again, dangling the little ornaments off of the exact same molecule that works so well. And what we found was the second one had the same efficacy as the first one, but actually had no tachyphylaxis. We didn't lose efficacy over time. And that's what came out as repressive. And so we had them both in the clinic and we were going to choose between them. And, and it just turned out that the repressive molecule actually made it all the way through. And, and I think you've probably seen some of our data that goes all the way out to a year with pretty stable IOPs, which is incredible. In the, in the field that we're, uh, patients we're trying to treat. And so in parallel, 
we decided that we were going to take the company public. And unfortunately, uh, the gentleman that we had running the company at the time when I came in as executive chairman um, just wasn't going to cut it with public investors. We put them out there and, and talked to a bunch of folks. And because I've, I've had two other public companies prior to Aerie, I knew a lot of the investors already. So I sent them to a bunch that I knew and got feedback you know, in terms of the story and the management team, et cetera. And we decided to make a change. And um, one of the options uh, that, that eventually the board ended up taking was me coming back into an operating role, even though I've been retired for a while. And so uh, we did that, brought in the management team. And uh, from the time we did it, which was in July of 2013, um, by October of that year, we got the company public. And Roclacan, which is the biggest drug that we have in, uh, currently out in the market, actually, when we went public, all we had was animal data. And so we moved very quickly from having animal data in 2013 to actually having phase twos in, in the 2014-2015 era. And then everybody kept saying, well, we haven't had a new drug approved for glaucoma forever, a new chemical entity, uh, much less no one's ever approved. And certainly Wiley hates combination products. And we kept saying, uh, yeah, but if we if what we learned a long time ago is if you do what Wiley suggests that you do, and the drug works, you get an approval. And so we've been listening to them pretty closely, and we have a great head of regulatory QA that's got something like 40 drugs approved within ophthalmology in the U.S. and a bunch abroad as well. And so he taught us how to listen to Wiley. We did, and long story short, we got both drugs approved within a year of each other. And so uh, we've been very, very proud of that accomplishment and and as you know, the biggest challenge now is how do you repeat it? And so uh, we do spend quite a bit of time on the pipeline and we've got a growing pipeline that uh, not only uh, includes some uh, future glaucoma meds, but also uh, moves us into dry eye and retina. We bought a company called Invisia that gave us um, the ability to create these small inserts where we can take small molecules and then mix them with polymers. And we have a deal with a huge polymer company in Europe where we can mix and match these things to create the best environment for that drug and then make these tiny inserts and inject them in the back of the eye. It's very predictive. And so we're able to move that forward. So it's a, it's been a long, it was a long road for those that started in 2005. But, you know, we still have in the company, we have about 400 people in the company, but about 10 of them are, were originals. They're still with us. That's great. I mean, you know, and 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 again, for people who aren't um, ophthalmologists who might be listening to this, or specifically not even glaucoma specialists, but it's fascinating. It was always fascinating to me as a as a clinician that um, even up until you know up until the time that Ropressa came out, we never had a drug that acted directly on the site of damage in glaucoma. We had all these workarounds, you know, reducing acreage production and increasing uveal scleral outflow and all these other ways to lower pressure. But we know that glaucoma is a disease of trabecular meshwork. And we never, up until Ropressa, you know, became available, had a drug that acted at the site of actual damage. And I, I think when I go back to all those lectures that, that I heard David Epstein, you know, give um, before his passing and, and, you know, where he was commenting on how ridiculous it was that we didn't have this and that his singular mission was to go out and figure out 
how to find the, the, the drug that did that and how you guys eventually came in and helped commercialize that to, to help with the realization of his dream. It's just a fascinating story of where a pharmaceutical company comes from. And, and, and really when the, when, the, when the foundation is looking at an unmet need or looking at a, a specific target that you know is going to work, going out, seeking out the, the chemical entity that's going to solve that problem, mm-hmm. uh, getting it through clinical testing and commercializing, especially two drugs that do it within 12 months of each other, you know, Ropress and Rocketan within a year, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, you know, progress. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of us look to, to areas, a company that's going to make these types of um, introductions for us to new products and, and new ways of treating disease, because you've, you've already done it once in glaucoma. And we certainly know that you're looking to do it in dry eye and retina other, in other ways. So um, I think that's somewhat of, of a ditcher, differentiator. And, and I think, and again, I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but again, it's a consolidation of general opinion from, from colleagues that you guys function in a very lean, efficient and nimble way. And hopefully we'll continue to see, um, you know, these products getting through clinical trials. I know that you have a, um, a phase two study going on, going on for your dry eye product right now. Is that correct? Yes. The product is, uh, we designated as 512. It is, uh, we bought a company, a Spanish company. They had developed this product, had a phase 2A study, and uh, we, we love the technology, we love the target, and, and obviously everybody loves the uh, dry eye space because of, you know, 30 million patients, but only 2 or 3 million of them get treated, so it's a big deal. But um, our drug is a agonist to the cold-sensing receptor in the eye. So given that where you live today, if you were to walk outside and you get hit with that blast of cold air, the very first thing that happens is your eyes start tearing up. Thanks for rubbing that in, by the way. Yeah, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, and so this agonist family and this particular receptor is one that hasn't been chased before, at least not in ophthalmology. And so you know, we find that um, the same mechanism will give us both sign and symptom improvement. So the sign is clearly going to be just tear production. We know that we can do that. We've seen it in the phase two trials and the phase two A trials. Uh, we're moving into this phase 2b trial that's actually powered as a phase three so we have enough patients in there um, and a broad enough protocol that we think that we can get all the data that we need out of this trial to go into if it works just have one more trial to do um, the same concept i.e the same receptor actually when we put the drug onto the eye it cools it down that's one of the things that the patients continually feedback is my it feels like i just put a little ice on it it just cools it as a cooling effect. And as you know, for the patients, dry eye isn't about signs, it's about symptoms. And so, if we can improve the symptoms, we'll get this stick to itiveness, they'll stay with that drug as the signs continue to sort of kick in and hopefully improve their condition. And so, you know, we will find out. We were very pleased with the way the phase 2A was conducted and the results that we got. And so we decided not only to run this trial with a sufficient number of patients to make it a three if everything worked out, but we backed up the truck from, from. We ended up putting in all these secondary endpoints. We're using the dry eye chamber. We're using the environment. So what we wanted to do was build a database around the drug with the first trial. And the reason for that was twofold. Number one, if it worked, 
we're going to, we had the choice, right? Either I can do just one more phase three trial, duplicate this one. But as you know, folks have tried to do that and sometimes it doesn't work. Or you can simply do one of each. You could do uh, one for signs and one for symptoms. So you run two more trials instead of just one. So it gives us that flexibility. The things that we learn out of the repression Rocketan, because again, new class into an established area, lots of generics in that category, as we'll have in dry eye with your stasis going generic, et cetera, is that in order to get your product on the formularies in managed care, you better have not only an approval, but you have you better have a pretty darn good story. Right. And so that's what we're trying to build by expanding the protocol to include all these secondary endpoints. And there's all sorts of little um, twists and turns that we put into the protocol that we think will make for a great story, not only for the patients, but also for eventually getting it on to managed care formularies. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and, and when would we expect to hear some of this, the phase 2B slash potentially 3 um, data readout. Do we have any idea when you're planning on completing yeah. it? So, uh, again, because there's plenty of patients out there, so enrollment has not been a right. problem. So we think it'll be Q3 of this year. Great. Well, obviously looking forward to that. It's interesting, the, you know, the genesis of that. I wasn't aware how that, you know, compound came to be. You guys grew Ropressa. Um, I think internally you acquired Invisio and this asset for dry eye. You have a, a library of several thousand multi-kinase inhibitors um, at your disposal. You foresee the future of ARI being this continuous mix of in-house development, acquisition, external uh, product sourcing. How do, you, how do you foresee the interaction of all these things as you continue to grow and become um, a larger piece of the ophthalmology pie? I think it has to be played out that way. I think if you take a look at the companies that have been successful and you know, I think about Alcon, they hardly ever developed any compounds on their own. They were always, I mean, they were big enough, they could acquire whoever they wanted to. And so that was their research side. And, you know, Jerry Cagle's on my board. So he and I have traded a lot of barbs back and forth since I was an Allergan guy about that. And so, but ophthalmology started simply by borrowing drugs from other therapeutic areas and applying them into ophthalmology, thinking of non-steroidals and the anti-infectives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even many of the retina products come out of the cancer field. Right. And so here we're trying to do a little bit of everything. So we're trying to, you know, we've invented our own molecules. I still have medicinal chemists running around. I still have guys that have replaced now Casey in doing the animal models, because what we're trying to do is to figure out how quickly can we get a drug in the hands of the practicing docs to do a, a small clinical trial. And that's really the only time you really know whether you've got something or not. Right. So our whole philosophy is to do that. And so we do see us continuing to try to invent NCEs. We will opportunistically look at uh, acquisition of companies or technologies to bring in. Invisio is a good example. The, the company that we bought in, in Spain was another one. And then we now have, because of the Invisia acquisition, a platform with our print technology. So the print technology is basically the ability to make these tiny inserts that then we can inject either in front or back of the eye. And we're focused on the back of the eye on the retina side. We can take molecules and our proof of concept really was 1105, which is dexamethasone inserted into the back of the eye to treat RVO and, and uh, diabetic macular edema. And so we were able to show that with our technology, 
and our ability to mix and match polymers, we can take dexamethasone and, and deliver it for six months. The current products either go out three years in the case of uh, Illuvian or they're much shorter than that in the two to three month range in the case of Osrodex. But we called out in talking to the retina physicians, which is one of the other reasons I like to travel, is that it, they said, no, 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 the way that my patients work and things like that, if you, six months is the best target. So that's what we did. And what was interesting is in looking back on the development and our ability, it was our ability to, to predict based on animal models of retina, how well the drug would work and for how long in humans. And that translation from animal models to human models and be able to predict that with a retinal insert on your first shot out, it was a pretty big deal. So now we can take other small molecules, mix them and match them with whatever pro, uh, polymers we want, put them into our insert and deliver them to the back of the eye. So it expands, so it makes it a platform technology. At the same time, and this is the fun part for us because it bridges glaucoma and retina, then we're taking a look at 503, which is the most active metabolite of, uh, of Repressa. And we can put that into an insert, go into the eye. We have plenty of animal models that show that we can, in a nerve crush model, we can actually get the axons firing again. What we don't know, we know we can deliver that small molecule to the back of the eye for six months or a year. What we don't know is what's the right concentration of 503 to get that effect over a sustained period of time. So again, a lot of flexibility in the print technology. So we're in the clinic now with uh, where we can inject more than one insert just to see what the concentration really needs to be. And then once we figure it out, then we can go back into the formulation side and come out with making, it, making sure that we just have uh, one insert or just one injection to deliver and that'll last for six or, or 12 months. So huge amount of flexibility. So we could do things only on our own, but we continually look at folks that uh, or companies that uh, have things that uh, on our own we couldn't do. And, and we know how to do clinical studies. We know how to do the regulatory stuff. We know how to get those drugs approved XUS. So it gives us a great uh, execution platform from which to grow. I think one of the biggest unmet needs in ophthalmology is uh, drug delivery, taking patients out of the equation to some degree, um, and having acquired a drug delivery technology, I think is a fascinatingly intelligent uh, uh, decision to try and figure out how we can better deliver drugs. It's, it's, it seems so easy to just put a drop on the eye, and it's so unbelievably challenging to get patients to actually behave and, 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 and do these things regularly. So uh, that's a great you know, great strategy in my opinion. The the more fascinating aspect is how real kinase inhibitors I think are going to continue to play an important role in in the health of the eye. I mean, we've already got um, evidence from Ropressa that there is a beneficial effect on lowering intraocular pressure. We've seen some of the data outside of the United States that shows the impact of of real kinase inhibition on corneal endothelium modulation in patients who are using these things. You are looking at a obviously it looks like or it sounds like neuromodulation potentially neuroprotective aspects of it. So there's a lot of different things and, and rokinase I think is, or rokinase inhibitors are probably um, at the forefront of their potential in terms of their, their ability to help uh, ophthalmology patients. You, you obviously have a plan to 
provide these drugs outside of the U.S. and certainly with uh, dexamethasone. I think that um, many people may not know about your relationship with Santin. Maybe you could just spend a minute or two telling us about your plans for how ARI is going to um, give access to their products outside the United States. Sure. So our globalization strategy uh, originated with the fact that we own these molecules. So unlike my last company where we were in licensing products and all we could do is U.S. here, we own the, the, all of the rights. And so we could always do it ourselves or partner it off. What we decided to do was um, that we would take the very first step and, and take these products either through all the way through approval or at least through a proof of concept, but a full-blown proof of concept phase two trial. And so what was interesting is uh, originally we thought that in Japan, we would do get all the way to approval with Repressa. And then somewhere along the line, find a commercial partner because you know we realized that as a small company, much less a non-Japanese company trying to, to launch products in Europe, we, or, I'm sorry, in Japan, that we would have some issues in terms of being accepted by the physicians, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, we did the first phase two trial in Japan and it was outrageously successful. You know, this is a drug that actually is able to lower pressure even when the patient's starting pressures are pretty low. And so we still saw the five, six millimeters of mercury drop, even though the entry pressures were in the 12, 13 range. And so, that was a fascination to the doctors. And so applying the same concept of getting close to the to the doctors that we did in the US, we did that in Japan. So we got to know all of the major players. And there's a gentleman, uh, Dr. Araye, who is the head of glaucoma, as you know, at Tokyo University, which is sort of the, the godfather there. We got to know uh, his successor and, and a number of other players. And so they fronted us not only with getting the clinical study done, so their FDA, called the PMDA, he was there with us. And I went along with Casey and, and our clinical and regulatory teams to present our case. And uh, we were able to get agreement in terms of what to do. And so once we got the phase two trial results and they were positive, all of a sudden we started getting calls from major Japanese companies. And so um, after long negotiations, um, uh, we selected Santen because they are the largest there. They also have a huge franchise in glaucoma on a worldwide basis, but we were interested in Japan. And so we decided in order to keep pressure on the negotiations, we continued all the negotiations with the PMDA on the phase three program as if we were going to go do it ourselves. And we actually started the first of the phase three trials. And so uh, because we didn't want them or negotiations for a partnership to slow us up. And so that that played out pretty well. It did put an awful lot of pressure on the system and put a lot of pressure on the companies to kind of come together with offers that were interesting to us. And we were able to get to the point of signing a deal with Santan last fall, which brought in about 50 million up front, uh, you know, typical milestones and royalty payments and things like that. And the other thing we were interested in was manufacturing the product. So it will be made for Japan out of our plant in Ireland. And so uh, as soon as we finish that first phase three trial, we have a small team of about five or six people in Japan. As soon as they finish with that first trial, we're going to move them over to looking at the dry eye product as well as the retina products in Japan. So we'll continue a presence there. Because all we've done is out-licensed repression rock in Japan. 
Europe was the same story. We ended up um, doing a, uh, not for approval, but a study comparing ourselves to a, a product um, called Ganforth, which is a combination product. So we compared Rakuten to that combination product. The reason we did that, it's, it's the highest price combination product in Europe. So if we do non-inferiority, we get that price uh, with the pricing authority. So that, that was the main target there. And we were successful in doing that. And just like in Japan, as soon as we unveiled the clinical, uh, the clinical result of call it Mercury 3, all of a sudden people started calling us, both global companies as well as uh, European-centric companies started calling us about taking our product into the European market. Now, originally, we thought we would do that on our own. And as the more we took a look at it, uh, the harder it became because um, we could do country by country. We would start in Germany because that's the, the freest of all the pricing authorities that you have there. And, and it goes all the way down to the really tough ones. And so and slowly build our franchise in Europe on the glaucoma side with our own sales and marketing effort. But these companies have started calling us. Uh, we're putting enough interesting offers on the table to, and they could launch both Ropressa, uh, which is called Rokinza in Europe, and Rakatan, which is called Rocklanda in Europe. Both of them are now approved. So we said, look, you know, the offers are interesting and they can launch in all markets at the same time. And so we got to thinking about that and started doing the math and it's relatively straightforward. The prices over there are much lower than they are here in the U.S. But Lead product, again, Gantforth is about $27 a bottle or something like that. But a leading product in glaucoma sells 5 million units, which is a couple million more than we would sell here because they just have more volume of product being used over there. And so big product over there is between 100 and 150 million U.S. in net sales. We started looking at then the retina products, especially the, uh, the steroid. And said, well, wait a minute, you know, that product could be because Europe uses more steroids for retinal diseases than we do here in the U.S. Over there, that product could sell 300, 350 million. So I'm not a math major, but I'm pretty sure 300 is better than 150. So we said, how about we just partner off glaucoma and then we'll take not only the dry eye side, but we'll also take. This, the uh, the retinal side and keep it for ourselves. And so that's what we're doing. The uh, other benefit is if I add 5 million units to my manufacturing facility in Athlone, we're running at probably full capacity and I may have to add a second ship. So all of a sudden that facility is fully functional, cost of goods comes down, we own the rights, we own the, we control the supply and that's the best of all worlds for a pharmaceutical company. And so it made all the sense in the world to partner Europe as well as Japan for us. That's great. I mean, again, you know, it, you know, I, I, I've been around um, probably longer than I'd like to admit. And, you know, having watched the, the growth of, of ARI from infancy through now, it's just fascinating to see the development and how you, you know, started, you know, at least in the world as a, a glaucoma company focused on the U.S. product, and now you're sort of a global entity with glaucoma, dry eye, and retina. And, I, you know, again, I guess the only thing I could say is congratulations on that growth and development. And, and I think that, you know, we will continue to see important 
uh, products uh, like Rocress and Rocklatin that have helped change the way we manage glaucoma patients come out of this company uh, because we think uh, that the attitude that you have towards um, finding products that are needed and making sure they get to the patients um, and continuing to invest in, in the development of both processes and products that will benefit you know, patients that we care for has just been exemplary. So, you know, I wish we could continue to talk for about, you know, you know, the rest of the things and questions that I have, but I think we probably should wrap it up here a little bit. I will say that I did learn some very interesting things about Vincenito today. So, you know, I did not know you were born in Cuba. Technically, it is Dr. Anito. It is. Technically, it's Dr. Anito. And I think that I will have to call you that going forward. Not that you expect people to do it. I don't know how you treat that doctor thing, but I only make my patients and my mother call me doctor. Everybody yeah. else. Sort of um, most people don't think I look smart enough to have a PhD. So for me, it's well, okay. They don't call I didn't me know doctor. That. I didn't know that. So never, uh, you know, for formal documents, it's about the only place you'd ever see my PhD attached to my name. Okay. Well, I did not know that. So now it's Dr. Anito. Um, and I did not know that you flew jets and I also believe, but did not know that you hate snow. And that would explain why you've continuously mocked me while you're in Florida and I'm sitting here in New York. So I appreciate that. But yeah, um, I could have turned for a round to just to show you our 80 degree weather today. <laughs> that would make us not friends anymore. So, <laughs> um, anyway, listen, Vince, I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to talk with me. I think, um, you know, I've enjoyed hearing about your. Um, growth and development and, and certainly look forward to um, continuing to speak with you about uh, ARI and its progress. And I, I know we're gonna continue to see great things. I hope the, the listening audience understands the significance of your company to, um, to ophthalmologists and to the care of patients. And, and once again, you know, congratulations on the success and, and looking forward to seeing you know, how the future treats ARI as well. So thanks again for your time today. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for the invitation. And uh, we've always been big supporters of, of your, your group and um, expect to continue to do so in the future. So, again, thanks for everybody, and and uh, it, it's been a fun ride. Yeah, thanks, everybody at OIS, and uh, looking forward to future podcasts going forward. Thanks for listening, and thank you to our guest, Dr. Vincenito, for sharing his journey of getting Ropressa and Rocklatan to market in record time. We've learned so much about how Aerie has been able to soar by staying nimble and operating so tenaciously. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and share us with your colleagues to help spread the word. And while you're there, click Get Involved if you'd like to be featured on our podcast. Until next week, keep innovating.